Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Friday, October 7th. I'm Joyce Napier. Today, stepping up pressure on Iran. This is the strongest measure we have to go after states and state entities. The Canadian criminal... Canada brings in strong immigration measures against Iranian officials and ramps up sanctions amidst the country's brutal crackdown on women. But why is the Canadian government stopping short of officially designating the Iranian Revolutionary Guard a terrorist entity? In moments, we bring in Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. And Alberta's next premier. No longer will Alberta ask permission from Ottawa to be prosperous and free. Danielle Smith wins the United Conservative Party leadership. She'll be sworn in as the next premier next week with a controversial sovereignty act at the top of her agenda. But can she hold provincial support with no seat in the legislature, no mandate from the people of Alberta, and politicians and constitutional experts slamming her vision for the province? We ask the leader herself. Plus, global pressure on Hockey Canada. An international association representing players warns Hockey Canada wants Hockey Canada rather suspended, and sponsors continue to flee as Canada prepares to host the World Juniors this winter. We've got the latest on the scandal. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. The Iranian regime is a state sponsor of terrorism. It is repressive, theocratic and misogynist. The IRGC leadership are terrorists. The IRGC is a terrorist organization. Taking action against Iran, global outrage continues after 22-year-old Masha Amin was beaten to death by so-called morality police. Iranian women have protested for more than two weeks, sparking a violent crackdown. Today, the federal government announced it will ban about 10,000 members of the Iranian regime, including the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, from entering Canada, expand sanctions against Iran, and dedicate $76 million to enforce sanctions. But the government is not declaring the IRGC a terrorist organization. Listen to this. The Canadian Criminal Code uh, is not the best tool to go after states or state entities. But we will continue to look at all tools we can use to do it. But what we are announcing today goes far beyond uh, things that uh, people have been asking for. So why not take the step to label the Iran Revolutionary Guard a terrorist entity and what sanctions are on the table? Let's find out. Joining me now is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Minister, I could see you. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Um, 10,000 members of the Iranian regime, including the IRGC, banned from Canada for good. Like, what impact can that really have? Well, to begin with, it would prevent any of those prescribed senior officials who are the architects of the human rights violations that we have seen visited upon women and other vulnerable groups from ever setting foot in Canada again. And that is an authority that has been sparingly res uh, reserved for the most egregious human rights violations uh, around the world, only a handful of times under the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, which is why we say this is a targeted, principled 
and strong uh, sanctions that we can put in place that will not only uh, zero in on the senior echelons of the IRGC, but the Iranian regime itself. And so we say with a very clear voice that this is the strongest action that we are going to take, and we are going to continue to pursue uh, every possible avenue to hold those who are responsible for those atrocities and stand with women and others to defend human rights here and around the world. But your government will also provide $76 million to agencies here at home to strengthen your ability to impose and implement those sanctions. Uh, freeze assets, you know, basically break it down for us. How is this going to work, the $76 million? Who gets the money? How, how, which organizations? Is it the RCMP? Is it Global Affairs? Well, the $76 million will put teeth into this announcement and make sure that we can enforce and make good on the sanctions, not only under IRPA, but as well as under the Special Economic Measures Act, the economic sanctions that we have been already using uh, to, again, uh, seize and freeze and stop uh, any possible avenue uh, of using Canada as a safe haven for, for ill-gotten gains and proceeds of crime that would advance the Iranian uh, regime's interests. And as to which agencies will benefit from this. It will be the RCMP, it will be the CBSA, it will be Global Affairs, and stitch together a strategy that puts in its crosshairs those, again, who are the ones most responsible uh, for, uh, for visiting upon women and other vulnerable groups these, these, these transgressions. So when people say, how do you make good? How do you take words and turn them into action? Of the $76 million, we believe, will go a long way towards materializing an enforcement um, capability uh, that builds on top of an already robust public safety apparatus. You're getting a lot of pressure from the Conservatives, uh, Minister, uh, to designate the Iran Revolutionary Guard a, a terrorist entity. I mean, you know, they shot a plane out of the sky with 55 Canadian citizens on board. They did this on January 8th, 2020. So... Why did you wait this long to implement these measures? Well, as we marked the 1,000 days since the downing of PS752, I, I recall spending time with families and, and grieving with them. I, uh, at the time, held the immigration portfolio. We ensured that those families could grieve with their lost loved ones by repatriating the bodies here to Canada. Uh, we created pathways for family reunification. We also explored new and innovative opportunities for those in Iran who'd lost loved ones on that flight to come to Canada and to stay here permanently should they choose to do so. Um, and so we want to really express that solidarity with them because we know this has been difficult. And today's action is yet another way in which we can deliver a blow to the Iranian regime, uh, again, using some of the most sparingly and most powerful provisions under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act so that no one who serves at that high level or anyone who is an architect or a purveyor of terrorism or an infringer of human rights can set foot in Canada again. What do you mean again, Minister? Like, are these people coming to Canada a lot? Is th that's why I asked you, what kind of impact could something like this, or, or any of these people had intentions to come to Canada? Well, one of the concerns that I hear from the community and from colleagues in the House of Commons is that uh, people are worried about uh, efforts to try and come to Canada using fraudulent means, uh, misrepresenting their identity uh, so that they can, can, can flee uh, accountability. And that's wrong. And that's why under IRPA, once we've designated the entire regime, we can prescribe senior officials and we can render them inadmissible. And that decision is permanent. 
which means never again. And that combined right. with the $76 million that we're putting into frontline law enforcement, again, puts teeth and puts accountability into our ability to enforce these sanctions. So, but I, I want to again ask you about, you know, declaring this a terrorist entity, the, the Iran Revolutionary Guard. So the prime minister says the Canadian criminal code is not the best tool to go after states. So is it on the table? Is, are you looking into that? Is that where your government is going? Well, first, I would say I'm very familiar with the criminal code, having uh, worked as a federal prosecutor for uh, about a decade. And so I know how the code applies. But I can also tell you, Joyce, that when we took a look at this decision, we felt that this was the strongest and best suite of sanctions which we could put into effect, um, not only looking at the IRGC as an entity itself, which, of course, is a terrorist entity, but looking at the entirety of the regime and giving ourselves the capacity to, again, target the most responsible individuals. And that's precisely what these powers under ERPA will do, which are not used often, which I think expresses the gravity and the seriousness with which we've taken this decision. We hear uh, the women who are marching in Tehran and around the world for their rights. We stand with those uh, who protested in Canada. And we want them to know that, that today is a concrete action that will be backed with resources so that we can hold those accountable and so that we can be sure that Canada will never be a safe haven for anyone that would uh, violate human rights. So it was interesting anyway today, um, Minister uh, Christian Freeland said the word terrorist, the Prime Minister did not. I'm sure this conversation will continue in the House of Commons. So Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, thanks so much for joining us and have a happy uh, Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, Joyce. A remarkable political comeback for Alberta's next premier. Daniel Smith won the United Conservative Party leadership race last night on the sixth round of voting. Smith took almost 54% of the vote on the last ballot and defeated six rivals over the course of those votes. But can the former Wild Rose Party leader bring unity to the UCP? Smith's political career took a catastrophic fall after she and eight Wild Rose Caucus members crossed the floor to join the Progressive Conservatives in 2014. That left the Wild Rose Party with just five members. And what about her plan for Alberta sovereignty? Smith says she will introduce the Alberta Sovereignty Act immediately as premier, but a proposed law to oppose federal legislations that are deemed not in Alberta's best interest has received some pointed criticism from people like Jason Kenney. How will she fight for sovereignty without a seat in the legislature? Let's find out. And joining me now is the new United Conservative Party leader and Alberta Premier-designate, Danielle Smith. Welcome, Ms. Smith, to Power Play, and congratulations for last night. That was quite a night. Um, you know, you, you are the Premier-designate. You promised change, but you don't have a seat. So, you know, how much change can you really expect to do without a seat? It's, it's really important to get a seat in the legislature. 
And I announced today that I'm going to be traveling down to Brooks Medicine Hat. One of our MLAs has kindly agreed. She'd already announced she was retiring, and she's kindly decided to step that up. So that would be the place that I'd be seeking a, a by-election. I do want to meet with the board first and make sure that there are, aren't any local issues that I need to resolve. But my intention would be, if we, uh, if I, if I can, to, to announce that the by-election will begin very early, as as soon as next week. Okay. So you will be, uh, you you'll be getting your your seat. You'll be sworn in as premier however next Tuesday but you said last month you would immediately introduce the Alberta Sovereignty Act so will you that yes and the nice part about how our process works is that we will have the month of December to be able to pass on the the priorities that I ran on one being the Sovereignty Act number two being a change to our human rights code to make sure that no one is discriminated against on the basis of medical choice we we can't be discriminating against unvaccinated people and and causing them to lose their jobs and also the the third thing is a reform of our health care system you've seen it across the country but it's it's getting quite dire in Alberta as well with the loss of staff due to in part vaccination policies we've got to make sure that we are uh, supporting our front line and getting getting people back to work and getting the reinforcements that they need in as we get into the respiratory virus season in the fall and winter so I, I want to go to the Sovereignty Act. You know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm a Quebecer, uh, so you know I'm uh, quite familiar with these kinds of concepts. Uh, but this is a proposed law you say would give the Alberta Legislature the authority to refuse, um, you know, uh, provincial enforcement of federal laws and policies, you know, deemed not to be in Alberta's interest. Um, does you you have 59 of, of 87 seats, maybe 58 if indeed uh, that MLA re resigns to give you her seat. But does your caucus support it? I, there's widespread support for pushing back against Ottawa from their incursions into our jurisdiction. And, and you were probably familiar of how Quebec used this very same approach. When the Emergencies Act was declared at the federal level, they convened their National Assembly and put forward a motion saying they wouldn't enforce it, and it got unanimous approval. So that would be the kind of mechanism that we would use in Alberta as well. I think you got an early example last week when Justice Minister Tyler Shandro said that our policing priorities are to go after gun smuggling and gang crime. It's not to confiscate legally purchased firearms from our farmers and our hunters. So we have said we will not enforce that. Policing's provincial jurisdiction, um, as, as well as the policing contract. That's under our jurisdiction to determine our priorities. And property and civil rights are also provincial jurisdiction. But, but that, but, but, and you would see, and you saw as well, that Manitoba and Saskatchewan followed very quickly behind. And so those are the kind of, um, of ways that we would use it. Yes, but they don't have, and they're not going to enact a, a, a sovereignty act as the one uh, that, that, that you want to enact. But, you know, you were elected last night on the sixth ballot by members of the UCP. Uh, you don't really have a mandate from the people of Alberta. So wouldn't it be, you know, sort of more legitimate for you to first, after a general election, to go through a process that is that important and that controversial? The, I think you saw with Justice Minister's action last week that we, we, we do already have the power to enforce our constitutional jurisdiction. The Sovereignty Act would just simply add the process like I described in, in Quebec, where we put it to a legislative vote, we have a full debate, so that everybody has a chance to make sure that when we're taking this action that there's buy-in on it. So it actually adds the democratic process to these kinds of decisions. And being that we're going to be very aggressive at protecting our, our constitutional rights, I think it was, it's only... It's only fair to put Ottawa on notice that things aren't going to be the same way that they have been for the last but, number of years. But Premier Legault, because you, you, you take a, a, we take Quebec as an example, wants to negotiate 
more powers for Quebec with Ottawa, immigration being one of them. Uh, we're all looking forward to the, the, the next Premier's conference with the Prime Minister. Isn't that a first step for Alberta? In other words, you know, before a general election to start negotiating perhaps with Ottawa more powers for Alberta. It's not a matter necessarily of having more powers. It's exercising the powers we already have. Immigration and agriculture are joint areas of jurisdiction, and we've deferred to Ottawa's influence on that. Ottawa comes along and gives us uh, d dictates for every level of social program that we have and tells us how we are going to run them. Quebec manages to negotiate getting block transfers without having the federal government tell them how to run their programs. We actually want to be treated just like Quebec. And if uh, Ottawa is able to give us the same level of respect that they do for Quebec's constitutional jurisdiction as they do for us, then we're going to have a great relationship. But I look forward to working with uh, Francois Legault, uh, the Premier, to, so will to that see if be there are other areas front? That, that we can also take over. Well, would that be a common front, seeing how you oh. guys you, you, you guys seem to be like-minded on, on, on just decentralizing Ottawa, bringing back sort of more autonomy for the provinces? Would you sort of, you know, gang up with Mr. Legault? Because your campaign seemed to be, you know, more a campaign against Ottawa than against your opponents in uh, Alberta. Well, it's because Ottawa is, has invaded our jurisdiction. We gave them trade and commerce power so that they could help facilitate getting our products to market. Instead, they have used that power to block getting our products to market. They've invaded our provincial jurisdiction to develop our resources, conserve our resources, and export our resources. And we've had enough here. We, we, we want them to be constructive, and we're going to push back against that. And I, I think Quebec could be an ally on that. But certainly Saskatchewan and Manitoba have already demonstrated they can be allies too. The, the way our country is supposed to work is that there are two levels of government, and they both have areas of exclusive jurisdiction. Ottawa doesn't respect our jurisdiction. We respect theirs. But they've got to make sure that they they stay in their own lane. And I think the country will operate as the founders intended it to. I'm, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Alberta Premier-designate Daniel Smith, thanks again for taking the time because I know you're very busy today. And again, congratulations for your win. My pleasure. Thank you. And coming up, Hockey Canada still in hot water. Could the scandal jeopardize this winter's World Junior Championship? We've got the latest. Stay with PowerPlay. It is obvious to all of us, to everyone except those people within Hockey Canada, that we have all lost confidence in Hockey Canada. And the longer it takes for those individuals who are clinging to power in Hockey Canada to realize this, the more Canadians are going to say, well, why don't we just create a different organization to do all the right things uh, that Canada, uh, that Hockey Canada needs to do. And welcome back. After losing numerous sponsors, Hockey Canada has now lost sports giant Nike. And three more provincial hockey organizations have denounced the sports governing body. Hockey Manitoba is calling for a leadership change, while Hockey Alberta and Hockey Nova Scotia will suspend the transfers of their fees to the national organization. Reminder, this year's Men's World Junior Championships will be held jointly in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And now the criticism of Hockey Canada 
has gone global. An international association of hockey union is, unions rather, is the latest group to join in the calls for Hockey Canada leadership to resign. So how much more thin ice can Hockey Canada keep skating on? Let's bring in CTV News' parliamentary reporter Kevin Gallagher for the latest. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Good Joyce. to have you in the studio. So what is the latest? I mean, it's this story just keeps on giving. It's a huge snowball that keeps running down the hill, and it's really a big question as to whether the board of directors are going to try and get out of the way here. So obviously Nike's the latest sponsor. Now, along with Tim Hortons, TELUS, and Imperial Oil Esso. They're the main primary marketing sponsors for Hockey Canada. So this is big bucks and also symbolically important. On the jersey for those world junior hockey teams, the Nike swoosh is on there. So with Nike out of the way in terms of pausing its sponsorship, it's not only financially painful for Hockey Canada, it's symbolically painful. This has been a company that's been supporting Hockey Canada for 25 years. That's on their website. You know, I'm not making this up. <laughs> but also, you know, with all these um, this World Association of Ice Hockey Players Unions, you know, they're basically going to the highest governing body in the world, the IIHF, that's the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation, and saying, hey, you should suspend Hockey Canada from the IIHF until somebody else comes up, like the Prime Minister yeah. said yesterday, and creates a new so, organization. So is this year's, you know, World Junior Tournament in Halifax and, and Moncton in jeopardy now? There's a lot of question marks that the the calls for a suspension. Also, we've heard yesterday from the Premier of Nova Scotia today, the Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, chimed in, says he's talked to his provincial counterpart and that there is discussion that they could pull their support from this World Junior Hockey Championship. Of course, this is a big tradition for a lot of Canadian families, the Boxing Day tradition, year after year, families get together. Now it seems that if, uh, you know, we heard of a joint statement from the mayors of both of those cities, Moncton and Halifax, that they want to see change. They're incredibly disappointed in Hockey Canada. They're calling them unprofessional. So something's got to give. Something's got to give. <laughs> We've been waiting since the beginning of the week. And I know that you'll have a report on tonight's CTV National News. Kevin Gallagher, thanks as usual. You're welcome. And coming up, Alberta's next premier wants her province treated like Quebec. Is Trudeau in for a political showdown with Alberta? Our strategy session will dig in next. Stay with PowerPlay. We will not have our voices silenced and censored. We will not be told what we must put in our bodies in order to work or to travel. We will not have our resources landlocked or our energy phased out of existence by virtue signaling prime ministers. And yes, there's a new leader to add to Canada's roster of premiers. Last night, the governing United Conservative Party chose Danielle Smith as their new leader, and she'll be sworn in as Alberta Premier this Tuesday. So how does the addition of Smith, who leans further right than her predecessor, Jason Kenney, change the makeup of provincial premiers? 
Well, the majority of premiers remain conservative or conservative-leaning, including recently re-elected Quebec Premier François Legault. The sole provincial liberal is Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Fury, and the sole provincial NDP is outgoing B.C. Premier John Horgan. The B.C. NDP is set to announce their next leader this December. And on the territorial level, Yukon Premier Sandy Silver is a liberal. So will the addition of Smith, whose first legislative priority is to bring in a so-called Alberta Sovereignty Act and bolster the province's calls for greater decentralization, or will this former Wild Rose leader be too much of a wild card for her provincial colleagues? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in. Greg McCachran from Proof Strategy Leans Liberal. Adrian Batra, the Toronto Sun's editor-in-chief, brings the conservative voice. And Anne McGrath is the NDP's national director. Hello, Strats. Happy Friday. Nice to see you all. Um, Adrian, I'm going to start with you. Uh, will Daniel Smith's premiership be a game-changer? in this provincial federal relations? Well, I don't know about game changer, but I think it's going to add to the chorus that's already there that have major and significant issues with the current Trudeau government. Uh, I think, you know, it should be noted. The, the two premiers that are women in this country, both, both conservatives, so Daniel Smith is added to that list too. But I don't think that, um, I don't think that a lot of the rhetoric that perhaps we heard on the campaign trail. We all know you campaign and the leadership one way and then governing turns out to be a, a, a different thing. I mean, she's she's got a competitive a provincial election, which likely won't be called anytime soon. But so she's going to have to take some time to really work with her, her MLAs and the caucus because, you know, people, many had perceived this as a walk away for her, that she was just going to run away with it. But, you know, on the sixth ballot, it was when she, she won it. So, so she's, she has to be cognizant of that. But she is absolutely, without question, um, focused on uh, ensuring that Alberta is treated fairly and that the central government, the liberal government currently, is hearing their voices. And there isn't a great deal of frustration. We've talked about it for years. On The, the four of us have talked about this for years. So yeah. Danielle Smith is going to have to be careful how she presents it um, and it's, it's because she's going to need support from her other premiers and other colleagues. So it's going to be interesting to watch. So I, I, I want to ask you, Greg, because, I mean, the Sovereignty Act, she says she wants to bring it in before, by December. Um, you know, she's got a mandate from, and, and, and I asked her that question, she got a mandate from, from the, the, the voting conservatives, but not from the people of Alberta. So, you know, they're, they're already not the rosiest relations between Ottawa and the premiers. Um, so will it be even more tense with her at the table? Well, I think that's her game plan. That's what she wants to do. And we all know we've said on this show a lot that, you know, there's nothing that will hurt a premier by running against, you know, Ottawa, the federal government. But it, it does seem a little bit tired and a bit of a retread. She has been running for premier for 10 years, which, you know, I can't falter for. That's about the same amount of time it took me to get my arts degree. But she's been <laughs> at this for a while. And, it, like, it, her own... You know, that left-wing ideologue, Jason Kenney, said she should not be pursuing the Sovereignty Act. And we've seen a number of premiers use um, court cases to the Supreme Court as their vanity projects to try to, you know, have this, you know, opposition or the resistance to yeah. Prime Minister yeah. Trudeau. But the problem with that vanity project, you're not paying for it. Your, your taxpayers are. I think one of the other challenges for her is if she was hoping to tag team with Pierre Pauliver on this, Pauliver really stumbled this week. I mean, it's a hell of a thing to see the 
prime minister asking a question in question period and the opposition leader feeling he has to answer it when it came to that YouTube video that was, you know, very anti-women uh, uh, hashtags in it. So I think there's a bit of a fatigue around that. Liberals have to face the fact that people may be fatigued with them, but people may also be tired with this anti-Ottawa rhetoric, and especially when the outgoing premier is telling his replacement, this is ridiculous. But the anti, and, you know, that anti-Ottawa rhetoric that Greg is talking about, you know, helped. Uh, Daniel Smith. Uh, it, it seemed at times that she was running more mm -hmm. against Ottawa than against any of her opponents. Um, so do you think it is a winning playbook for other provincial premiers? Well, first of all, let's say that, that, that the uh, anti-Ottawa rhetoric coming out of Danielle Smith is, is not new in Alberta politics. I mean, you know, you can go back, and it's not new in a lot of politics. I mean, federal-provincial tensions are evergreen in Canada, uh, and particularly in some provinces like Alberta. Uh, let's remember that Danielle Smith won, narrowly won, on the sixth ballot with only 53%, um, uh, the leadership uh, of a party that is deeply divided and pretty unpopular and that has a viable governing alternative ready to go. So uh, I wouldn't read tons into this. She's definitely going to be running against Ottawa all the way along. She ran, has done it. She's done it in the past and she's doing it again now. The other thing to remember about Danielle Smith is that uh, she has, as, as uh, the others have pointed out, she has a history in, in Alberta that goes back uh, quite a ways of the end of sometimes some pretty wacky positions and some pretty wacky decisions. And so I'm not sure that she's going to have a smooth ride. If she can divert attention to uh, an anti-Ottawa kind of feeling, uh, I, I think that, that that might be her best bet. But Albertans are pretty savvy about this, too, like because we have such a history with it. Uh, I think Albertans uh, have a sense of when uh, a provincial politician is using that to divert from their own either lack of policy or misplaced priorities. So, so Adrian, I want to ask you that because mm -hmm. Quebec Premier, you know, I'm a Quebecer, so we're very used to this sovereignty uh, uh, <laughs> issue. Um, it, Quebec Premier François Legault was re-elected. He also wants more power to you know, sort of decentralize Ottawa. Do you see Legault and Smith as, you know, a strong team fighting for greater decentralization, which, you know, in the end may not be bad for Canadians? Well, it's also, well, I don't know if, if they would be allies because they're, they're fighting for sort of a similar concept, but with different ideas and, and different approaches to it. And certainly both those premiers are treated certainly different. Well, I, I mean, soon to be Premier Daniel Smith, they are very, they're treated very differently. I mean, Francois Legault overwhelmingly won and, that, and congratulations to him. Uh, but, you know, he's brought in some pretty controversial uh, pieces of legislation, no, most notably Bill C-11. Most federal politicians won't touch the uh, touch that. So, but yet yes, they're going to pounce on yes. Premier Daniel Smith, the CC-21. They're going to pounce on Daniel Smith for even suggesting that Alberta should have some independence. So, let's see how this plays out. I think, if anything, there is a lesson or two that Danielle Smith could perhaps take away from uh, Premier Legault and how he uh, brings this idea forward. But again, I, I'm going to reiterate what I said earlier. Much of what we heard on the, the, the leadership campaign trail, I, I know that we just played the clip of her leadership uh, election, her victory speech. That's red meat for the base right there. 
Let's not yeah. discount she Tamina's frustration with Justin Trudeau. That yeah. is a very and, and, real and Greg, live issue. An and, and, and Greg, she already toned it down today. For instance, the provinces want an increase in health care transfers. Will she have to tone down that rhetoric, uh, which happens, you know, right after an election campaign? Will she have to in order to get those those ex, uh, funds from if, Ottawa? If, well, switching from health care to the economy, she has to do something because there's a huge opportunity in Alberta for post-fossil fuels. Um, Calgary and Edmonton, their economic development organizations did a study a year ago this summer, the uh, president of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. They're nervous about a premier who just wants to pick a fight with the federal government when they need 2 to $5 billion of an investment a year to capture this, this huge opportunity that they have in, in post-carbon fuels. Um, and, and, you know, the buck stops with them. You know, take a page out of Doug Ford's book. Doug Ford did not pick huge fights with the prime minister, and he got re-elected. Um, I didn't see the premier of Quebec doing the same thing. It's a bit of a frostier relationship, but those two gentlemen yeah. were re-elected soundly. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, under the Liberal NDP deal here, Prime Minister Trudeau plans to eventually make progress on dental care, pharmacare. Will he have to make nice with Smith to get this accomplished? Well, I think that, I mean, in, in, the, in, the, in that uh, arrangement, there are things that, that, uh, that, that will need to be done over the next period of time. Things that I suspect will be quite popular uh, with the citizens of most provinces. Um, I believe that uh, that... that, that soon-to-be or premier-designate Smith would be wise to focus on things that Albertans really care about rather than uh, her kind of, I think, fairly fanciful uh, Sovereignty Act project. I think that what Albertans really care about is their, is their health care system and what's happening to their health care system, much as the rest of the, all other Canadians care about that. And I think that if the, premier, the premiers have the opportunity to come together and really force the hand of Ottawa on health care spending, that seems to be a much more fruitful uh, endeavor for the premiers. Yeah. And a, as the others have pointed out, I'd agree. she won, she won a, a leadership. She did not win a general election. Yeah, and uh, she will be sworn in next Tuesday. So that's unfortunately all the time we have. Greg McCachran, Adrian Batra, and McGrath, thank you for being there. As always, have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you. you Happy too, Thanksgiving. Yes. And coming up, Health Canada gives the green light to another COVID-19 vaccine that targets the Omicron sub-variant. Sub but what cases, what, with cases on the rise, are Canadians showing up for the booster shots? Canada's Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Howard New, joins us next. Stay right here with PowerPlay. As Canadians prepare for the upcoming Thanksgiving long weekend, Health Canada has approved another tool in the COVID-19 toolbox. Pfizer's bivalent vaccine targets the BA4 and the BA5 strains of the Omicron variant, as well as the original strain of the virus. It can be given to three to six months after a previous dose or infections for Canadians age 12 and older. Health Canada has previously approved Moderna's bivalent vaccine last month. This comes as Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, says there are signs that COVID-19 is resurging and Canadians should stay up to date with their vaccination. So 
Will this new vaccine help stem these new cases? And do Canadians want them? That's the important question. Joining me now is Canada's Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Howard New. Thank you for joining us, Dr. New, especially because the Blue Jays are playing a playoff game right now, and you're a huge fan. So we appreciate you being here to talk to us about vaccines. Um, you know, we are seeing a resurgence in cases. So how will Pfizer's and Moderna's bivalent COVID-19 vaccines help stem the rising tide? Well, certainly what's important to note is that, you know, it is bivalent, as you noted, and the fact is it does have an Omicron strain in addition to the initial strain. So that's that's key. And I think uh, what we've learned during the pandemic is that, you know, vaccines have been very, very good in terms of providing protection, both at an individual level as well as the population level, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, severe outcomes. But that immunity wanes with time. And so I think uh, for a period of time, we were in a fairly good place, especially over the summer with what we call hybrid immunity, people either having immunity through natural infection or uh, through vaccines. But uh, as we know that the, the, the immunity isn't uh, permanent, it, it's not long lasting. It's uh, at this point, it appears to be somewhere in the neighborhood of about six months, you know, at the outer limit. And that's why we're coming forward today with the recommendation, especially with the approval of this uh, new Pfizer vaccine that you should go out and get a, a booster dose, certainly if you're eligible, you know, if it's been six months since your last dose or since infection. And certainly, as you pointed out, based on individual circumstances, you know, based on the epidemiology, maybe personal factors, the criteria for individual provincial and territorial programs, that interval could even be as little as three months in terms of offering that vaccine to individuals. So hopefully people... We'll be up to date, especially with Thanksgiving. You know, people are get, are going to get together. And so besides, I think, all the layers of protection, you know, the use of, of masks, you know, maybe if you're in indoor spaces, I think here, here in Ottawa, uh, the local medical officer of health, so even thinking about uh, recommending, you know, that people uh, go out to maybe uh, celebrate Thanksgiving outdoors. So, you know, indoor ventilation, use of masks, and, of course, keeping up-to-date vaccines, I think, is key. I know, and, and, and you know, we've heard that, and, 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 you know, thanks for reminding us, but Canadians are not, we know and we hear from health officials, provincial health officials, Canadians are not getting, you know, are not heeding the call. So what can you do to make people want to get more shots? Well, I think there's a number of things. I think one of the things that we've done much better on during the pandemic is increasing accessibility, you know, in terms of actual ease and convenience so people can get their vaccine, be it, you know, mobile clinics and all sorts of other innovative things. That's certainly number one. That's increasing physical sort of accessibility. I think number two is that we continue to recognize the fact that, you know, misinformation, disinformation is out there. And certainly uh, by having trusted leaders uh, empowering, uh, you know, uh, uh, Canadians with the right information through trusted providers like healthcare professionals, uh, physicians, nurses, for pharmacists included, and as well, you know, community leaders. In, in many communities, uh, you know, it's all about uh, who do you trust, who do you actually have that personal connection with. So by empowering them and working with them, to, to give them the right yeah. information to, to maybe pass it on, not just because, quote, Dr. Tam and myself and others at, you know, the federal level uh, say you should get a, a booster dose. Hopefully all those efforts together will, uh, will uh, motivate and encourage people to get up to date with yeah. their vaccines. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for those, um, for those explanations, Canada's Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Howard New. Thank you and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you and uh, go Jays go.
<laughs> and uh, stay with us. This week, François Legault secured an even bigger second mandate in Quebec, while sponsors back away from Hockey Canada. The press gallery digs into this and more with their political plays and misplays. Next, stay with PowerPlay. And welcome back. A premier wins a second, even bigger mandate while the face of a Canadian pastime is thrown in the penalty box by its key sponsors. So who came out on top this week in politics? Let's ask the press gallery. Joining me now in studio are ctvnews.ca online produce, political producer Rachel Ayello. She writes the must-read Capital Dispatch newsletter, Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacourt, who writes political news for thought. Oh, nice. <laughs> and Greg Weston from Ernst Cliff Strategies. Uh, he doesn't write, he just thinks. So, <laughs> nice yep. to see you all. Happy Friday. Um, I'm going to start with you, Greg Weston. What is your pick this week? Uh, my play goes to Francois Legault and his uh, Coalition Avenir that won uh, their second uh, major victory in the, in the Quebec election. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it, it's, it's not so much that, that they won, that it's, it's how and the tone and the tenor of, of the whole thing. Um, you know, this was really the politics of the status quo. We, we see so much around us uh, in, uh, in federal politics and in provincial politics of politicians trying to go out and make a big splash and, and they're angry and uh, it's almost revolutionary. Uh, and here was really just sort of steady Eddie going out there, which, when you think about it, is the second premier this this year who has has adopted that. Doug Ford uh, played the uh, the Uncle Doug role very very well. Nothing flashy, nothing fancy. Uh, I think it, both of these say something stability. Uh, about right. stability and the mood of Canadians is is just you know let's get through this. Called tepid. One columnist called it a tepid campaign and a tepid politics of the status yeah, quo, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it, it does tell us, though, too, they didn't suffer for the pandemic, and that that I find really interesting. Yeah. You know that uh, these guys, you know, at, at some points there, their their citizens were were kind of angry at them, but uh, not for this election. Kind of angry, just an understatement yeah. of how angry <laughs> Quebecers were. What was your pick this week? Uh, so I'm giving a misplay, probably the most obvious misplay of the week, uh, to Hockey Canada uh, for their continued handling of Someone this Someone had to. You know? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a contender for sure. I think we all watched that committee hearing earlier this week kind of train wreck uh, with a bit of dismay at how unable Hockey Canada seems to be able to read the room uh, and, and do what so many people are calling for. You know, if you are losing a bunch of sponsors, the Prime Minister is calling or suggesting at least that you ought to be replaced. Uh, it's very much not a good week for you. Uh, so as a kid who grew up in hockey rinks, I'm genuinely curious to see how they pull their way out of this if they can, uh, because at this point, at least the positive is they've unified Canadians, at least politicians. Unfortunately, it's against them. So. Greg, you're the strategist, really, among us. What is their strategy? Give them one piece of advice. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to... I, I know for a fact that they have hired uh, at least one major firm to advise them. And the problem with these things is when, when you're a board and you hire someone to come in to advise you, 
it's kind of hard for the advisors to say, I think you should all resign, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so they, they come up with all of these uh, strategies on the, the object becomes, how do we save you, the board? The board has hired you, how do we save you? Uh, in this case, it is, is really it's just painful. This is just kind of a, a slow drip. Um, the, the number one rule in, in crisis communications is figure out how this is all going to end and get there as quickly as you possibly can. We all know this is going to end in, in all of those people being gone. Uh, it would be nice if they spared us all the pain of watching them day in, day out. Susan, you have a play or a misplay? It'd be a misplay. Oh. Uh, yes, it's Mr. Polyev um, and, uh, or whoever put the uh, men going their own way tags on his um, YouTube videos. Um, you know, they've been, the, the, I had actually thought that everything was sort of floating off him. You know, the liberals were throwing cryptocurrency at him and all of that. But this story brought by Global News, my old colleague, actually, Alex Boudelaire, um, it was, uh, the, it seemed to rattle Polyev. Like, he, he looked like he had to explain it. And given that we're about to have the public hearings on the convoy, in which the liberals are going to be trying again, to tag him as flirting with extremists. This was not a good look this week. And I think the Liberals found something they could throw at him that, that threw him off. Uh, yeah. he, he did try to, he, he gave back, but he gave back on issues that the public has already had two elections on, which is Trudeau and Blackface and um, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Um, and that was, he, he tossed it back with, with his vigor, but um, I, I, it did look like he was rattled. And, and after saying they would look into it, the party said they're not going to look into it. So what's up with that? Uh, that's a great question, Joyce. I think generally Polyev's response, although not surprising, was lacking. I think if the Prime Minister had went into the House in a controversy of that forum and answered it the way he did, Polyev would keep pushing back and asking for more accountability and more action. So I'm curious to see where the Liberals take this. I do think, though, there's a bit of a caution for all parties in how they play this because, you know, the conversation about online harms and some of the stuff that's going on is a serious one. I think Canadians and uh, political leaders should be having it, and this shouldn't just become something that the Liberals fundraise off of, for example. Yeah. So how do they avoid, you know, making this story even bigger and lasting longer? The best thing that, that they could do is exactly what Polyev did, which is just cut himself uh, as far away from it as quickly. He was just came out and said, I'm against all of this and the rest of it. But it goes back to what somebody said about, um, about six months ago. Uh, we were having a, a conversation. He said, you know what? What's wrong with the Conservative Party is not the party. It's not the the new leader it's the dangerous part of the conservative party is conservatives and uh it, it's always a problem when when you've you've been through especially after uh, leadership campaigns you sweep in uh a, a lot of of people who who are not going to be uh, attractive to your mainstream voters and that of course is the reality for danielle smith it's the same uh for pierre polyev the people who made you the leader of the, the party may not be all that useful to you in as you try to broaden your, your appeal to, uh, to the electorate. So that's what's, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing for yeah. him. And it will be interesting to see, you know, what happens next week uh, in the House of Commons on this story because I think it does have legs. Yeah, yeah, I do. He has a grace week. Uh, there's a break week, so it'll be another week okay, before they well, come back. Yeah. Um, well, there you go. <laughs> Rachel Ayala, Susan Delacourt, Greg Weston. 
Have a lovely weekend. Thanks for being here. And that's your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here on Tuesday. From everyone at Power Play, we wish you a very happy Thanksgiving.